Pints with Jack, Season 3, Episode 12. Till We Have Faces, Part 1, Chapters 14 to 15. Tough Love. Good morning. Welcome to Pints with Jack, a podcast where two enthusiastic C.S. Lewis amateurs get together, share a beverage, and discuss a work of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're reading Till We Have Faces. My name is David, and I'm joined by Matt... It's all Greek to me, Bush. That is a reference to your deep exploration into all of the Greek heroes which are mentioned in this book. <laughs> I was trying to guess what it was before you said it. I got stuck at the T and the M. It's probably because you tried to make it too flattering. I did, actually. <laughs> I was thinking, <laughs> what is the greatest thing I could say about myself? And now you're right. I need to approach this too. How can, as David would do, how can I subtly dig Matt in a way that both is humorous and plays off of some some stereotype of me on this episode on this podcast that I have allowed to be cultivated. There you go. That's that's a far more sensible approach. <laughs> What's your drink of the week? What lame thing are you drinking today? A honey lavender tea. Okay. Well, I'm double fisting it. I have a coffee which has a mixture of almond milk and oat milk, and it's delicious. And for the fun drink, I'm drinking Benchmark Old Number 8 brand, which is a Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey. How'd you come across it? Is this one you've had before? No. The liquor store down the hill from where I live, they have a whole load of samples around the, uh, around the cashier. And so I literally went in there, got a bag and just started loading up. That is fantastic. I hope it's good. That was where I got the slightly weird peanut butter whiskey. Mm, I forgot what our, your review of that was. I like it, but in small doses. It's it's like the the honey whiskies that you have. It's great. Just don't drink too much of it because it's it can get a little sickly. So my judgment, just based on the name in the beginning, was accurate. You were trying hard to make it seem the opposite. It's nice. I just wouldn't drink too much of it, which is a good rule for temperance anyway. Yeah, fair enough. Well, let's do the quote of the week. I've got one I like. It's also going to play into our YouTube video. For all listeners, a reminder, go check that out. YouTube channel. The quote is, You do not think I have left off loving you because I now have a husband to love as well? If you would understand it, that makes me love you. Why, it makes me love everyone and everything more. So to that, cheers. Cheers. Drum roll. Hmm. I quite like it. Better than the peanut butter? Hmm. It's different. It's quite, uh, it's quite dark. It's not very sweet, but it also doesn't have that drop kick you in the face that bourbon often has. I'm wondering if we should do more with our tasting notes and things like this, because we are pints with Jack and one of our reviews actually put, it's not a drinking show in somewhat of a disappointing way. <laughs> it's not a drinking show though. And how are we going to do tasting notes when you are having, what was it? Lavender and... <laughs> Well, I mean, yeah, you'll have to pick up the slack for the next 75 days, but... Well, see, I'm heading into Lent soon, so uh, then I'm, I might have to give up alcohol. You, so. know, you, won't, you don't have to twist my arm to relax this for a single sip on each of these episodes. You do you. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of reviews and one of them that I was thinking of, the reason we got so many recently was the competition, and you guys stepped it up. I'm going to be mm -hmm. frank. I was not expecting this many. 
because there's just a high hurdle. The, the, the listener, subscriber, download to review ratio on podcasts is pretty low. It takes some effort to go do that. We don't like effort. You guys just stepped it up. So the competition, when you're listening to this, I guess it's not, yeah, it'll be, it's closed. And we have selected the individuals. We're not going to list them off here, but most of you, we I've already sunk up the email to the review. I think there's one of you that I have not. And I'm going to say it now, this name. And if you hear this in the next couple of weeks, few weeks, please do send me an email. It's the person who wrote it, Will Lewis, W-I-L-L-O-U-E-S. They said, very thankful I found this insightful podcast. I don't think we have an email for that. So they might've just naturally left a review. But if they hear this next few weeks, you have something coming. If you don't, I'm sorry. But the rest of you, we're not gonna list them off now because we want to be a surprise. So if I have your address, it's just gonna come. If I don't, I guess the surprise will come in your email inbox asking for your address. So thank you guys for those. And we actually also have another message for one particular listener. Travis Barnes, I hope you're now reading Till We Have Faces to your wife. She sent us a message and it was lovely. And she said that you were planning to read to her. I'm just, I'm just really hopeful that that's now been happening. I've loved how they both <laughs> engaged us separately. And I've greatly enjoyed both, I think, wrote reviews. Um, both have emailed us independently. And I've just greatly enjoyed that. So thank you, guys. And the only other thing I had before we get started, Clumsy Theosis, which is another podcast done by my friend Rochelle. She had a really great episode this week. Uh, and it was called Not Today, Satan, When the Accuser Attacks Your Identity. And since the entire question of identity and your authentic self has been a theme that we've been working through this season, uh, it'll be well worth going and having a listen. As you'd expect, there'll be a link in the show notes. And I'll say we, we have some, this is our shortest banter, so I'll just say one minute about that. I listened to it. It was incredible. That concept of uh, the accuser, Satan, teaching you lies was probably one of the more profound talks I had heard. And she summarizes it very well, but I heard it years ago at a St. Bridget's retreat in California. And I just never heard of thinking of the lies that you tell yourself and Satan fueling those, naming them, and then speaking truth to them. So her her episode I listened to, it was a beautiful reminder of that because in life we, cr- we have these negative narratives in our head and they're just so false. And the accuser wants to take our identity away from Christ, wants us to question that we are loved by God. And so it's definitely something I would recommend. It was a beautiful episode. Thank you, Rochelle, if you are listening to our podcast for that. And you'd better be. I will be testing to see whether or not you've listened. (laughs) Yes, if you are, you need to text David. This is a test. Well, we have two serious chapters to do today. Things go down this week. So this is what happens in chapter 14. Cue that music. Taking Psyche's urn, Orwell packs inside linens and food, as well as a lamp and oil. Bardia has been tasked with guarding the palace in the king's absence, so he assigns a reticent soldier, Gran, to take her back up the mountain. At Orwell's request, Bardia reluctantly gives Orwell a dagger. Through the wind and the rain, Orwell and Gran return to the hidden valley where the weather is fine. Orwell crosses the river, After telling Psyche that she's the only one left who really loves her, Orwell presents a series of arguments against Psyche's husband, appealing to logic, emotions, and authority. All fail to persuade. Orwell challenges Psyche to shine a lamp on her husband during the night. 
When Psyche refuses, Oral stabs herself in the arm and threatens to do even worse. Out of concern for Oral's life, Psyche relents. As the light fades, Oral leaves, weeping. I'm sorry. I'm losing my ability to empathize with Orwell. <laughs> I'm so, I, I got frustrated in this, and we'll see why as we unpack this, but my goodness, can she just grow up? Yeah, yeah. When I was reading this with Marie, there were a couple of points where it's like, what? Mm-hmm. So the chapter kicks off with Orwell doing some packing. She takes a lamp, some oil, some food, and some linen, and sticks them in the urn that she was originally going to bring Psyche's ashes back in. And it's really appropriate that the linen that she's using is the kind that bridesmaids wear and the ones that Oral actually wore to the marriage of Psyche's mother. And I also thought it was kind of ironic that she's taking wedding attire up to the mountain because rather than going to a marriage, as we'll see how things fall out, it's more akin to a divorce. Good catch. I didn't notice that. I'm smart like that, you see. (laughs) Lewis is clever. He's clever, and I'm just mostly attentive. (laughs) I agree with that. Now, the king is going out. He's going to be hunting these lions. And when she's certain that the hunting party is gone, Orwell leaves her room. And I'm going to draw her attention to this. I've been drawing attention to these these little phrases throughout, but I think I finally confirmed what I think Lois is doing here. She says, I put on my veil and cloak and went down. So she's telling us that she's covering up. This is even before she's left the palace. And I think this is all about whether or not she's going to show or hide her true self. And I think when she's veiling up, it's because she's not going to show her true self. And there was one comment, actually, that she makes when she says she goes into the palace. She says that everybody seems much happier and more more at liberty now that the king isn't there. And she says, I thought from their looks that all the family felt it. Who is this rest of the family that she's referring to? The only other person we've really heard mentioned is Redival. Is it that there's an extended family that we just haven't heard about? Or does she mean the whole family household? Well, at a minimum, we know the king has a lot of bastard children. Well, that's true. So, I mean, technically, in our definition, those would be part of the family. Yeah. But I agree. There's nothing, there's no other hint that there's some close kin that's a part of how we would define family. Yeah. Well, strange, though. Hmm. She sends for Bardia, and she wants him to take her back up the mountain. And she says that it's on her sister's business. And this is the first part of the veiling that I saw. It's manipulation. She specifically said that she wants to go on her sister's business because she knows that Bardia isn't going to deny the wishes of the blessed. But unfortunately for Oroel, he's actually been tasked with protecting the palace and isn't even allowed to leave. So he instead gives her Gram whom he describes as the small dark one. He's a good man. And last week I had my interview with Christine and I was looking in her book and with reference to Graham, she's wondering whether Lewis is giving us a bit of a pun because he's called Graham and he's a small man. So he's kind of light. I still don't see it. A gram is a weight of measurement. A small one. It's kind of like calling somebody titch. Seems like a stretch. Maybe. Maybe it'd be like, oh, pound. I don't know. Hey, pound. (laughs) I feel like he wouldn't do that. (laughs) It's a good try. Maybe. But either way, we're told that he's a very discreet guy, very quiet. And uh, Oral says that he was a very thin-faced man, very black-eyed. And I thought 
looked at me as if he feared me. And later she would say that when he helped her up onto the horse, he touched her in the same way one might touch a snake or a witch. Do you think that's in her imagination or do you think that's real? I think it's both. It, what she's thinking or referring to here is she thinks she's just so ugly. And of course, you're going to touch a snake or a witch pretty cautiously, if at all. And I, I don't actually know if it's really to do with that. It might have just been reverence, kindness, but she just assumes everything from the perspective of complete ugliness and no one wants to touch her. Probably more, actually, I would say no. We learn later, the guy's just shy and quiet. It doesn't seem like the type of person that would be very bold. So there's probably another explanation here, as is usually always the case with Orwell. And a good life lesson for all of us, <laughs> there's more than one answer to a lot of different out, um, situations, I guess. And also he's taking a princess up a mountain. And so you want to keep everything above board. So mm-hmm. you're not going to manhandle her. Yeah. Now, Orwell actually has another request and she asks Bardia for a dagger and he reluctantly gives it to her. And then she says, farewell, in such a way that Bardia is, you're coming back, right? What do you think Oral had in mind? I think it's a combination of, one, she doesn't know. I mean, she's, the first thing is she thinks she's going to stab herself. So it sounds like she's, I get the sense, she's committed to killing herself. So there is a chance if Psyche digs deep, she is going to kill herself. So this could be truly farewell. So that's probably my first thought. And what I believe is probably the first one. The second is maybe she gets lost. I mean, not lost up there, but drawn into it. And she actually stays there with Psyche or something of that sort. Stays with Psyche because she can't leave Psyche. So maybe there's another outcome of her not killing herself, but she loves Psyche so much she can't leave her side somehow. Or she could convince her to leave the mountain. But at that point, they can't go back to Gloam because the people will just send Psyche back up to be sacrificed again. So they might have to flee and become beggar women. Like she said, I think it was in the last chapter. That's probably what she's hoping is the, yeah, there's probably the two outcomes. She's either going to kill herself because she's committed to that. Or if she was able to win over Psyche, yeah, it sounds like she's gone either way in her mind. Now, if the weather had been welcoming Orwell on the previous ascent of the mountain, now it is basically telling her to go away. Uh, as they're going up, it's just wind and rain. Uh, but yet when they come to the Valley of the God, it suddenly changed. And she says it's almost as though it has its own ecosystem. And we know Lewis uses landscape very intentionally. So my thought is here, Lewis is trying to communicate when we get into communion with God, when we get closer to the gods, that is when we experience beauty, reality, joy, peace. But when we get distant from them, we get more of a gloomy thing. I'm thinking of in The Great Divorce, of the, the gray town versus what it's like in ultimate reality. And so here, I, I feel like that's what he's trying to communicate. There's a drastic difference when you're with the gods, when you're not. Hmm. That's fair enough. Now, Orwell, she leaves Graham and she heads towards the stream and she gives a surprisingly accurate assessment of the state of her heart. She says, my heart was as still as ice, heavy as lead, cold as earth, but I was free now from all doubting and deliberating. She's absolutely determined as to what she's going to do. And she calls Psyche, who appears almost immediately. Must be like she just hangs around the river. And Orwell notices the contrast between her and her sister. She says, We might have been two images of love, the happy and the stern. She, so young, so bright-faced, joy in her eye and limbs. I, burdened and resolute, bringing pain in my hand. (laughs) The irony in this statement. 
it's like she in this moment she is as close to possible of the knowledge that we all know they are two images of love distorted possessive love right ordered self-sacrificing love two different types like she's she is there (laughs) but then poof like everything else goes away discards it and almost immediately she's given yet another reason to change her mind because psyche points out that she was right in her prediction about the king she says the king has been no hindrance to you has he salute me for a prophetess and oral says that she had forgotten about this and then she says but i put it aside to be thought of later i know why it just it just blows my mind that she just wouldn't a think about this when it actually happens when she gets back and finds out that the king's going to be away for a few days it's like oh my sister said that how could she have possibly known and then when she's reminded of this she thinks well i'm going to think about it later i've got something to do this frustrated me too because i'm like this right away put to death the fox's belief that it's a thief or some natural person up there that would have taken her away. Because if that's the case, this would have been the luckiest guess of all time. And it was very prophetic. She obviously knew something. So there has to have been some sort of divinity, God-like thing communicating to her or placing that knowledge on her heart. So the gods have to be real. She can. I would be okay if she still thought the gods were awful. But she has to admit they are real now. And part of the answers that she's thought are gone. And it just adds to the cumulative case of she did see the palace before. Mm-hmm. And now this prophecy comes true. Come on, Orwell. At least stay your hand for the moment. Find out more. And this isn't even the worst it gets. It gets worse throughout the chapter. Yeah, it does get worse. Well, she sits down a little bit away from the water and she says, I threw back my hood and put off my veil and set down the urn beside me. And so if my theory is right about these references to uh, veiling and unveiling, I think now we're going to see the real Orwell. So I think this is great, and I, I hope you're right here. I'm going to be curious if we unpack this. What if you think this is a true Orwell? Like what is the, the, the real versus false, I guess? I'm not going to say I don't think she lies here, but I think we see her. We see her very clearly. Like her possessive love self her? Yes. It, it's, it's, if she's hiding, she's not doing a very good job of it at this point. Mm-hmm. And, you know, are we going to see her face? Well, the very first thing that Psyche says is, what a storm clouds in your face. You look just how you used to look when you were angry with me as a child. And oral in typical oral fashion, she takes it a bit personally. She doesn't remember ever being angry with Psyche. It's that selective memory. Uh, and then she says, well, you know, if I was ever angry with you, it hurt me 10 times more than it ever hurt you. Which is, again, very self-centered. And it's going to... It's going to play into the argument that she's basically going to bring to Psyche. You know what actually could be interesting here, too, if she takes off her veil? Maybe this is the first time Psyche sees her true self. So not only us, because Psyche, I've never seen Psyche before. She's combated her with all this love. But in this chapter, for the first time, we see her, one here, say, whoa, what a stormy cloud in your face, kind of shocked. But then later, as we'll see, another example where she calls out how bad the love of Orwell is. It's like for the first time ever, she realizes how distorted Orwell's love is. So maybe there's that as well. Mm. Mm-hmm. I like it. Now, do you remember earlier in the book where Orwell wrote saying that she wished she could be Saki's mother, her full sister, her husband, all of these things? Yes. As she begins to try and 
convince Psyche. She basically says all of that's true. She says, our father's no father. Your mother is dead. You've never seen any of your kindred, which I find really strange. She never went and visited her family for Thanksgiving or the holidays. Weird. But she says, I have been, or at least I've tried to be, all your father and your mother and your kin to you, and all the king too. And that idea of her being king to Psyche tells you what she wants to do. She wants to rule Psyche. Mm-hmm. Now, Psyche actually affirms most of this. She says, you've been all of this and more since the very day I was born. You and the deer fox are all I ever had. <laughs> and although nothing is said, I couldn't help but think that, oh, well, she wouldn't have been happy that the fact that the fox gets included in this as well. <laughs> yeah, well, later we see her essentially try to take credit for who Psyche's become. So that doesn't surprise me. And I noticed here just how little jealousy there is in Psyche. I just, I like to, I love pointing those things out. If, I, if someone said to me what she just said, I've tried to be this to you, this to you, this to you, and essentially claim credit for who I become, I'd be like, hold up, back up. Because I just, I mean, that would be my pride speaking, which is my point. Psyche is just so pure that even in the face of that, she can still affirm Orwell and say what is good about her. Yeah, you did try to do that for me. I appreciate it. And, and Orwell's trying to hold it over her head. And Psyche tries to communicate something to Orwell. She says, you do not think that I've left off loving you because I have a husband to love as well. (laughs) That's exactly what Orwell thinks. And as I said in the last episode, I don't think it would have mattered if it was the god of the mountain or just some other king. I think Orwell would have been just as put out the fact that there was somebody new in Psyche's life. And Psyche goes on to try and unpack it and says, I I wish you could understand that because of my love for my husband, it makes me love you and everything even more. She's explaining what divine love does. It enlarges all of the other loves. Now this, this is something we as humans are conditioned to think the opposite because in most things in life, there is a scarcity. Even time, there's a scarcity. If you apply it somewhere, you, do, you use your time in some way, you can't use it for something else. Mm-hmm. Resources in economics, it's scarce. It's all- It's game theory. It's game theory. It's Somebody's got to lose. It's exactly right. And most things are zero sum in life. If I get, you probably aren't getting. This with love, that's not the case. Earthly love, maybe there's some scarcity- uh, if, if maybe you could argue that there's only so much loving capacity a person has. Unless you're a polygamist. <laughs> <laughs> but what here is such a beautiful lesson is the divine love when infused in us is not scarce. Mm-hmm. And when we give ourselves to God, exactly as you said, it doesn't take away from our ability to love the world. It, al- it gives us the ability to love the world even better. And that's just such a profound lesson that Lewis is trying to teach us here. And then we begin the court case of which Orwell asks us, the readers, to be the judge. And she argues against Psyche, first of all, using an argument from authority. She tells Psyche that she must do as she says, uh, because she's still little more than a child. And it might even hurt her, but she's still doing it for Psyche's good. After that, she appeals to reason, asking why does her husband hide his face? She says that nothing that's beautiful hides its face. Nothing that's honest hides its name. She's going to regret that later. (laughs) And then she appeals to emotion, saying, your heart must see the truth. You really know this, Psyche. You're just deluding yourself. And Psyche is briefly angry. It's actually almost quite comic, the way that she's briefly angry, but then she quickly conquers her emotions. She says, I'm furious. Okay, I'm sorry for that outburst. I'm calm again. (laughs) And I think she even says, and I forgive you. Yeah. 
she's like she is Sarah Smith built out over many, 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 many chapters. Mm-hmm. And for those who just jumped into us, Sarah Smith was a very beautiful character in C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. Nevertheless, unperturbed, Oral then calls more experts to the metaphorical witness stand, saying that both the fox and Bardia agree with her that Psyche's husband is either a brute or a brigand. Uh, Psyche's response to this is just wonderful because she compares Orwell to the gossip batter. And we, we know how much that irks Orwell when people compare her or even mention batter. Well, I will say this, though. There was something really beautiful in the way she did it. She said, that is more like batter than Orwell, which just a life lesson I've learned from Brene Brown, actually, shame versus guilt. You can critique someone for the way they're acting, but you critique the action. Not the person. Yes, not the person. And she did that right there. I don't know if Lewis meant to be that wise or not, but she goes, that is more like Bata, not Orwell. Essentially saying Orwell is not Bata. You are different than Bata. Yeah. And be more of yourself. Yes. There, there you go. It's just, ah, she's so wise. But she's shocked that Orwell would tell her story without permission. And this is, a, this is one of these other points where Orwell goes down in my estimation, because Psyche misunderstands what Orwell said, thinking that the fox also thought that her husband might be the brute. But Orwell chooses not to correct the misunderstanding. She says, if that's what she took out of my words, I thought it no part of my duty to set her right. It was an error helping her towards the main truth. I had need of all help to drive her thither. And this is the problem. Orwell cares more about getting her own way rather than pursuing the truth. And that is a very dangerous road to go down (laughs) because you'll very quickly find yourself doing and saying things that you would have never have justified before. But now you can justify anything if it means that you manage to win or get the person onto your side. Orwell then goes on and says, Neither the fox, nor I, nor batter, believes for one moment in your fancy that he is a god. No more than this wild heath is a palace. And be sure, Psyche, that if you could ask every man and woman in Gloam, all would say the same. The truth is too clear. And this is clearly not true. We know that Bardia believes, and Orwell already admitted that Bardia's opinion would likely reflect the opinion of all Gloam. And we know the fox is wrong, and she should too. N- not even we, she should, because of what we mentioned earlier of the, the propheticness of Psyche's statement. She should have known right away that that discounts Orwell's entire, th- I mean, the fox's entire thesis. Now, Psyche's response to all of this is wonderful. She says... What is all this to me? Basically, why should she care what other people think? Particularly all of the people of Gloam. I also love that she said, but what is all this to me? How should they know? I am his wife. I know. I just appreciated I am his wife. I know. It's experiential knowledge right there. It's deep. And she doesn't, honestly, she doesn't care what the others think. And we've all felt that in our own spiritual journeys. It's like, I know God exists. And of course, we can build the rational reasons and arguments, but there comes a point where you've just experienced his love, his presence, his grace, the transformational power of prayer, and you just know. But Orwell is quick to point out that she can't possibly know him if she hasn't seen him. Seeing is believing. And Psyche's, she responds saying that to answer that question in how she knows him is rather unfitting. And she basically points to the fact that they share a bed together every night. And needless to say, Orwell takes this as some kind of taunting, the fact that she's unmarried. Although she's willing to admit that maybe Psyche didn't, you know, mean to taunt her. (laughs) Of course, Orwell would take something wrong. 
But she then challenges Psyche and she gives her a, a test to confirm the status of her husband. She says, shine a lamp on him in the middle of the night. And Psyche refuses. And Oral crows. She says, ah, you'll see, you'll abide no test. And why? Because you're not sure yourself. If you were, you'd be eager to do it. Which is not only mean, but it's also rather insulting. Because what would it say about Psyche if that was true? If she was sleeping every night with somebody that she wasn't convinced was who he said he was. Yes, she's very manipulative. Yeah, and, and Psyche responds that she's not, she doesn't want to do this. It's not because it's of fear. It's because it's a shameful thing to cross her husband, to do something that he is forbidden. And Orwell, I think this is in her, in her attempts to persuade Psyche. This is probably her best, her, at least her most persuasive part of her speech, but it's still no less cruel. She says, I can think, Bardi and the fox can think of only one reason for such forbidding, and only one for you obeying it. Again, that's really insulting. Mm-hmm. And Psyche says, well, you know little of love. And again, Oral just takes this badly. She says, you fling my virginity in my face again, do you? Here, she's confusing the kind of love that Psyche is experiencing, either agape or at least eros, with what Lewis calls in The Four Loves, Venus, the actual sexual act. Psyche isn't talking about sex, but love. That if you think that the only reason that I'm not obeying this is because of sex, then you're wrong. It's because of the love that I have with my husband. Yeah, that, that line of Orwell's, of what you now call love, I do know nothing, screams of Orwell's immaturity here. And she says, you can, this, this, this love of yours, well, you can whisper about it with Redival better than me, because we know about Redival's history. Or to Ungit's girls, or maybe to the king's doxies. And this does clean up one thing that I had wondered for a while whether Ungit's girls were basically it was temple prostitution. It wasn't, then nobody ever came out and quite said it, but this implies it to me. I wondered it too. And then Orwell says, Okay, you have your love. She says, I know another sort of love. You shall find what it's like. Which, <laughs> when, when you're threatening somebody that you're going to love them, <laughs> Uh, I think that says something might be a little off with your love. <laughs> you don't say. And uh, one of the things that I found kind of horrifying was that even Orwell mischaracterized Psyche's obedience. She basically comparing it to her father's tyranny. She says, well, you're just making this husband of yours something even worse than our father. Because she can only comprehend obedience in the face of power and tyranny rather than love. And Psyche just responds that, you know, he's a god. He has good grounds for what he does. And when I read this, I thought back to the comment that you made last episode. The very fact that Orwell has been brought up with a story of Aphrodite and Anchises should give her pause. Because at least in that case, Aphrodite had a reason for doing what she did. She veiled her divinity so that the two of them could come together. And it doesn't seem to even cross Orwell's mind that the god of the mountain might be doing the same thing with the darkness. Which, here I can empathize. The only reason being is, if I put myself in her shoes, coming from such a belief in ugliness, she just can't even, I honestly believe she can't imagine that kind of beauty. Yeah. Because the whole argument, the opposite argument is, it's such an extreme beauty, you can't handle it. And I don't think she can even think of that because the closest thing she's seen to perfection and beauty is Psyche. Yeah. And frankly, she does think she can handle it. In fact, she wants to control it, wrap it up and keep it all herself and possess it. 
So there's a whole nother amount of beauty that she, her mind just, they can't fathom. Where Orwell, or psyches can. And we've seen examples of that, where she can, she can picture and imagine a beauty well beyond this world. In her longing, we see it constantly. But daylight then begins to fade, and Orwell's hope of illumination is waning, much like the sun. And this is where she offers an ultimatum. First of all, to get Psyche's attention, she stabs herself with a dagger. Which is one way of doing it. She, she writes, I flung back my cloak further, thrust out my bare left arm, and struck the dagger into it till the point pricked out the other side. Pulling the iron back through the wound was the worst pain. But I can hardly believe now how little I felt it. And, and in that, when I was first horrified by it, I, my other thought was, it's kind of ironic that Orwell is offering her blood in sacrifice to Psyche. You know, she hated the sacrifices in the House of Ungit, but here is Orwell shedding her own blood for the wife of the god. And to be fair, in her mind, out of love. So it's a connection of sacrifice done out of love seems fitting. Even if it's a distorted love and a completely wrong one, she's still doing it in her head out of love. And I would say that's the power of this distorted kind of love. Because when you're willing to make such a sacrifice... Surely that is the proof that this is real love, the fact that you are willing to sacrifice so much. Mm-hmm. And notice too how in this entire book, everything is pretty close. Like from, from the right way to the wrong way of doing things, the right love to the wrong love aren't actually that far off in the sense that this here is just way off. It's manipulative, abusive, She's, she's literally emotionally manipulating Psyche to her will through sacrifice. Yet another sacrifice can actually be the right orientation of sacrificing. And it's not actually at its core that different. So much of it is your interior motivation or disposition of what you are doing through all of this. I just think about that in life. <laughs> We're not that far from the, when we live from our false self and our true selves, they actually don't look drastically different, I don't think. Mm-hmm. But the inside is drastically different. It's that Augustinian idea again of, of what evil is. It's a twisting of a good. Yes. Now, Psyche bandages Orwell's wound with the linen from the urn, and Orwell demands a blood oath from Psyche. She tells her to swear on the edge of the dagger, that still has her own blood on it, that this night she's going to do what Orwell says. And she says, or else I'll kill you and then myself. And rather movingly, Psyche points out that she didn't need to offer both of those threats. Simply threatening suicide would have been enough to make Psyche do her will. Which suggests if this was for, part, I don't know, maybe it's more for Orwell herself. She needed to feel like she loved Psyche, prove it to herself, do the actual thing. Food for thought. And I think it also shows that her love is possessive, that... If she can't have Psyche, then nobody can. And as Psyche considers what's happened between them, Orwell writes that the look in her face now was one that I didn't understand. I think a a lover, I mean a man who loved, might look so on a woman who had been false to him. Now, I'll admit, I'm not entirely sure why she focuses on it being a guy here. But either way, there is this deep sense of betrayal, that a trust has been broken by what Orwell is now demanding. 
And Psyche gives an assessment of what's happening to their relationship. And I think this is utterly spot on. Mm-hmm. This is that other scene I was referring to, by the way, where Psyche sees Orwell really for herself. Yeah. Yeah. She says, you're indeed teaching me about kinds of love I didn't know. It's like looking into a deep pit. I'm not sure whether I like your kind better than hatred. Because they're very similar. Oh, Orwell, to take my love for you uh, and then make it a tool, a weapon, a thing of policy and mastery, an instrument of torture. I begin to think I never knew you. Whatever comes after, something that was between us dies here. Wow. (laughs) That's where Psyche saw Orwell for the first time fully. That's where Psyche realized Orwell's possessive love. It's amazing how you can go so long without noticing it. Of course, we have third-person view here as we're reading this, so we've paid attention to this from the beginning. And perhaps we are also a little bit more cynical. Yes. Psyche, you're right. Psyche assumes the best in everything, sometimes naively, but beautifully. Now, Orwell continues to press her for her oath. And Psyche's response actually reminded me of the movie Silence. Have you seen it? No. It's basically about the 17th century persecution of Christianity within Japan. And basically the authorities torture Christians and get the priests to renounce Christ in an effort to save the other Christians who are currently being tortured to death. Because Psyche says that she's going to give her oath, but it's not for any doubt in her husband's love. And she actually thinks better of him than she does of Oriol. Uh, And she hopes in his forgiveness that she's being forced into doing this. And uh, Oral even, she, she comments that, hey, look, he doesn't actually even need to know. And Psyche looks at her scornfully and she says, you know, I'm betraying the best of lovers. And how, how could I possibly not tell him? She says, I know what I'm doing. In doing this, before the sunrise, all the happiness in my life could be gone. But this is the price that you've put on your own life. And I have no choice but to pay it. This is interesting because it made me think of Lewis's teaching on pity and can pity hold people in heaven hostage. And here it's almost showing, we know what the true teaching is. And obviously Psyche's not trying to represent perfectness of teaching, just a much better love. But here it's an example of where it is holding hostage, actually. And I would say she's actually about to do the wrong thing. If she has such faith in her husband, she should tell her husband what Orwell is making her do. Mm-hmm. And the husband will probably say, my guess is there's nothing I can do. Her heart is not open to receiving. He also might have been able to do something if Psyche had asked. But as we're about to find out, it, do- it appears that she doesn't even give him that option. And she concludes her conversation with Orwell with some chilling words. She says, the sun is almost down. Go, you have saved your life. Go and live it as you can. So let's get on to chapter 15 and... We can actually move to this one quicker because this is now really just a series of events that happen. Orwell returns to the other side of the stream and waits for her plan to be put into effect. While she waits, she feels conflicted, but ultimately remains resolute in her course. In the middle of the night, Psyche shines her light. Momentarily, everything is still. Then a piercing divine voice is heard, followed by the sound of weeping. A storm erupts in the valley, thunder rumbles, lightning flashes, the river rises, and much of the valley is destroyed. The god appears before Orwell and pronounces Psyche's punishment, exile. 
He tells Aurel that you also shall be Psyche, although this is not explained. Aurel hears Psyche's heartbreaking weeping growing fainter as she heads off into the distance. In the morning, Aurel and Graham return down the mountain, and Aurel considers what her fate will be, and what exactly she will tell Bardia and the fox. There's a lot here. Well, I think there's less here. <laughs> you do. I thought this was the bigger of the two chapters in terms of themes. And I'm going to be really curious as the book goes on, particularly what does it mean by the psyche part? Um, you're going to become like psyche. But this is where she learns, every, I mean, more or less she's revealed the truth. And she's revealed the answer of how you can't, the gods can hide themselves because they're too much to handle. There's just a lot. It, it is, you are right. I think it's one of the more important chapters. It's easier to say shortly. So let's walk through the stuff that happens in this chapter. Orwell returns to the other side of the stream. She possibly passed out because she's got some memory loss. And she realizes that she left the food in the urn. But she doesn't call Graham because uh, she doesn't seem to really like him. Uh, and she comments that she thinks everything would have been better with Bardia. But she doesn't really explain why. Maybe just because he's more familiar to her. And when she remembers why she's there, she writes that she was immediately ashamed that she thought of anything else. And this, again, is just emphasizing again and again the all-consuming love or obsession that she has with Psyche. And she sits and waits for Psyche's light to appear. And we get a peek into Oral's mind a couple of times in this chapter because she says that this is when she starts thinking about what would happen when Psyche shows her light, about how... This time, it would be I who helped her at the ford. She'd be all weeping and dismayed as I folded her in my arms and comforted her. For now, she would see that we were true friends and would love me again and would thank me, shuddering for saving her from the thing the lamp had shown. Which reveals how she really regards Psyche. She doesn't think that Psyche actually loves her, despite what she says. And while she's waiting, it's really interesting that she can't quite shake the fact that she might be wrong. Yes. Which is good. <laughs> Because she's had enough evidence to think that she might be wrong. And she actually even says that she thinks about calling out to Psyche and telling her not to do what she told her. But nevertheless, she just represses it. But she does reflect on the interaction that she's had with Psyche. And talk, she talks about the hopeless abyss of her scorn, her unlove, her very hatred. And she says, how could she hate me when my arm throbbed and burned with a wound that I'd given it for her love? <laughs> Girl, you stabbed yourself. She didn't ask you to stab your arm. And then she says, cruel psyche, cruel psyche. And when is she going to realize, again, this is one of Lewis's great contributions to apologetics, to logic, to reason, is what the professor did in Narnia. Is Lucy a liar? So she's saying how it's cruel psyche, cruel psyche. She's ha if her understanding of the world is correct, yes, psyche is cruel. But in what world is Psyche ever proven to be even remotely close to cruel? And if she's not cruel, this worldview is just done. And also she even gets a hint of it by the very words that she betrays herself with. Cruel Psyche, cruel Psyche. That was what she said when she was in a delirium. There you go. <laughs> Run back up the mountain, girl. But she doesn't. The night grows colder. Her arm hurts more. And it's then she finally starts realizing the danger of her actions that she's wounded, she's without food, and she's spending a night on a mountain when she doesn't have shelter or a fire like she did last time. She could actually die out here. And 
it then takes a very odd, odd shift in thought because she then starts fantasizing about her funeral and particularly about the reaction of those around her. She says, Out of that seed there grew up in one moment a huge foolish flower of fancies, for at once, leaping over all question of how it should come about, I saw myself laid on a pyre, and Psyche, she knew now, she loved me again now, beating her breasts and weeping and repenting of all her cruelties. The fox and Bardia were there too. Bardia wept fast. Everyone loved me once I was dead. Oh, seriously. I mean, it's so sad. It's genuinely sad that she looks, she has so little identity, self-worth, that she needs, she just seeks affirmation in any way possible. She's craving for it. And as Psyche does, she gets it from the gods. But as Orwell does, she needs it from the world. And they just can't fill the voids he's trying to have filled. And the last final thing she can think of is when she's dead, they will, of course, miss me, love me. It's like, oh, it breaks my heart. And I don't want to come off to callous here because this is something genuinely people feel to varying degrees and fantasize about. And it's not, I don't even want to go to the full extreme of actually thinking of doing this, but there's just individuals who con- that we all do it to some degree of fantasizing about how are ways that we will earn love, win love, receive love. And this is just a little bit more extreme than I think the average, but oh, breaks my heart. And then the light appears on the mountain. And when I read that, it suddenly solved a riddle that I had asked back in chapter seven, when Orwell enters the five-sided room. And she comments on something that I just found strange. She wrote, Psyche sat upon the bed with a lamp burning beside her. Of course, I was at once in her arms and saw it only in a flash. But the picture, Psyche, a bed, and a lamp is everlasting. Hmm. This is exactly what's happening on the mountain. Was this a premonition? Or, and I think this is more likely, the effect of a guilty conscience in the retelling of a story? Hmm. I'm not going to be able to come up with a thought on the spot. I'm thinking about it. It's food for thought. Food for thought. <laughs> as, as Orwell would say, I'll think about it later. <laughs> well, the stillness then breaks. Orwell hears a voice. Uh, she describes it as imp- having implacable sternness and being golden. And she says, my terror was the salute that mortal flesh gives to immortal things. So she hears the voice of the God and then the sound of weeping. Then the valley changes as a flash which lights up the valley. There's thunder, lightning, there's pelting rain. Uh, the river starts to rise. Trees begin to fall. And even the walls of the mountain begin to break. Sort of put me in mind of the final scenes of Lord of the Rings. <laughs> and strangely enough, Oral is actually encouraged by these calamitous events. I can't handle this. This is when I lost it with her. <laughs> Seriously, read it and I'll tell you why. Well, she said, I saw all these as a good sign. They showed that I was right, that Psyche had roused some dreadful thing. And one of the things that's kind of funny about this is she said that uh, maybe she hadn't hidden her light soon enough, or more likely, it had only been feigning sleeping. (laughs) She's accusing Psyche's husband of setting a trap for Psyche. Hello? (laughs) Pot, kettle, black. That's exactly what you did. (laughs) Yes. And she says... It might, no doubt, destroy both her and me, uh, but she would know, and that, that's, that's what really mattered. She would at last know the worst, um, and she would die disenchanted and reconciled with me. And, you know, even then we might escape, or failing that, we can die together. 
it shows I'm right. All right. I mean, I just, I'm at a loss of words with Orwell's blindness is the word I'm going to use. But there was even signs in there. Yes, I can see how you can interpret this angry God. I can see how you can say, all right, gods are real and they're angry. But the, the light, the description of the light being so bright to me suggests more beauty than anger. The voice, which she said, struck me as golden. Again, not angry. It was stern, but it was golden. So there was enough signs in there that this God is a beautiful thing. But probably it's acting the way it is because you tried to set a trap. I mean, does she not think about this at all? Yes. Ugh, I'm, I've had enough. I've had enough. <laughs> well, hang in there a little longer. We're not quite done. Because then the God appears. He appears in light. Uh, he's something like a man. She describes him in very beautiful terms. And he even appears to be walking on the water, which obviously for Christians has kind of a biblical image. And again, we go into Orwell's Orwell's psyche, <laughs> Orwell's mind, and we see the odd turn that it takes. Because she says that there's this Greek verse that says even the gods can't change the past. But she now begins to question it, because when she meets the god, she says he made her realize that, you know, from the beginning, that, he had al- that she had always known the truth about psyche, and that everything else had just been trumped up foolery, dust blown in my own eyes by myself. So when she comes face to face with the god she realizes her self-delusion. And because she, she says, well, if the gods can change the past, why do they never change it for good? And my, my thought was, oh, well, you've just seen things clearly. You've just had your excuses wiped away. And you know that that feeling that you had before, you should have listened to that. And her comment about why do the gods never change the past for good? My question is, how would you know? <laughs> yeah, so if they did, you wouldn't, you would, it would be the same. Oh, yeah, well, you would be encountering good things and you just think, oh, well, that's, that's fortunate. Mm-hmm. This... What you were describing right before when she describes a man, sees a man, this, there was so much truth in this, in our conversations of theosis becoming, journeying, till we have faces, the veil. It shows that we've been hinting at this and talking about this, the God hides himself because we can't handle it in our current state. As we become more substantial, as we, to reference the great divorce, as we become more aligned with the will of the gods, we can begin to handle more the beauty of God. And for listeners and like the Christian journey, and I always ask David to chime in because he knows more theology than me. But when we get to heaven, we'll experience this beatific vision. And I imagine it's something like this that we wouldn't be able to handle in our current state until we have been transformed in Christ, that theosis. And so Psyche has undergone this. Orwell is like a little child, immature, on the journey, she and she sees right here, this is why the gods are hidden. We can't handle them in our current form. She even says, my mortal flesh salutes to the immortal in a fear, almost. Like, because we are ashamed of who we are in our, our ghost-like state. There's just so much hidden in here. And this is, I think, getting close to a big theme of this book, Till We Have Faces. I couldn't answer it in the very beginning of this book, like, why is it called Till We Have Faces? Well, we can't handle the gods until we have faces. I think there's also an idea of authenticity mixed in there, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a little bit more before I, I give my, my own final judgment. But the god himself, he gives his judgment. <laughs> See that transition? That's beautiful. Yeah, and David, and also what you're alluding to is the god gives his judgment, and I'm still going to add to the god. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm David Bates. He says, now Psyche goes out in exile 
Now she must hunger and thirst and tread hard roads. Those against whom I cannot fight must do their will upon her. You, woman, shall know yourself and your work. You also shall be psyche. And then Orwell hears weeping, which he says is the kind of weeping that would break your heart, even if the person weeping was your greatest enemy. And she hears Psyche crying, going off into exile. And she says, I knew who wept, and I knew what had been done to her and who had done it. I wonder if she thinks that she is the one that has done this, or if she's just blaming the god. I would sure hope she realizes it's her, but given earlier her encouraged answer that she said I was right, I bet it's the latter, that she thinks the god is a brute and all she did was triggered events that needed to be triggered and were going to happen. I don't think she's yet seeing God, the god is a good god, and I angered him. And so now Orwell. But then again, I could say between that point when she was encouraged and now maybe the weeping changed her heart and made her realize, but I still think she's going to look at that as Psyche will eventually realize the good I did for her. She is just having this delusion broken and it's painful. I honestly think that. I think you're right because the following morning she sees the wreck that is the valley and Psyche is gone and she finds Graham and they begin to travel back to Gloam and she starts thinking about the events of the previous day. And she actually doesn't think a whole lot about Psyche. Not really. She just concludes that, okay, so the gods are real. The gods hate me. And so pretty much all I've got to do now is wait for their punishment. And she talks about looking out upon the world and just seeing nothing but enemies, which is just showing her shutting down her heart. She's not open to love or beauty anymore. And she does ponder what the god said. He said, you also shall be psyche. And she wonders, does this mean I'm also going to go into exile? And of course, since she's writing this in the future, that doesn't happen. So maybe he was wrong. But personally, at least at the moment, I think the you also shall be psyche is just a follow-on to the earlier phrase when he says, you woman shall know yourself and your work. You will come to know who you truly are and what you've done. And in the same way, you will then be Psyche because Psyche knew who she was. And also Psyche is now parted from the thing that she loves, her husband. Well, now Orwell is also parted from the thing that she loves, which is Psyche. And to go back to the great divorce, this this, this reminds me of what Reginald says to Pam, the, 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 the doting mother who wants her son with her in hell, when he says, when he explains why God took her son, it was only so that, that there was some hope that in, in, the, in the void that her son left, that she would reach out to God. I think this is the beginning of the journey back for Orwell. I think similarly, she will be like Psyche in the sense that Psyche was herself. So I think part of that beginning stage is, well, she will see herself as she is, but she will also become like Psyche over the rest of her life, the type of journey that allows her to be in communion with the gods. She's going to start to undergo theosis, I think. It's a long journey, but I believe she'll get there. And I think this is the long way around. I think there there was a quicker route, but since she's burnt that bridge, she now has to go the long way around in this journey. Yeah, she had all the signs before she could have. God was hoping, hoping, hoping that she would see them, receive the graces, as we've talked about, see the palace and believe the palace, and many more beyond that, which is going to, I want to set up a question here that's on 
that we have to think through the same way I've asked this or wall really is it her fault or not? Is this God's, if we reject all of God's graces, is this Lewis arguing that there's still a fail safe that God implements at the end where, okay, you've rejected, 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 rejected seven times, 70 times. And I will still draw you into me, but now it's a rough way. I'm curious if that's what Lewis is trying to argue here and not to go down theological paths, but that's just something in the back of my mind I'm going to be paying attention to now. Well done, David. Well done, Matt. <laughs> Listeners, please join us again next week. Uh, we're going to do another two chapters, so chapters 16 and 17. When we're going to be going further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.